ahead and continue in our uh, study. We're, um, as you can see on our uh, slide here, make sure we're starting on the right slide. Yep. Okay. So um, you can see in our slide uh, presentation that we're in a study. It's basically a study in theology. It's uh, a study in the um, uh, currently the doctrine of Christ. We uh, looked at uh, teachings regarding God, doctrine of God. We looked at teachings regarding man himself, doctrine of man, and then now we're in the doctrine of Christ. So what does the Bible teach about that? And that's all the word doctrine uh, really means. So our lesson today is a continuation of a lesson that we've done the last uh, two weeks. Um, the first part of that, uh, this lesson was on Christ's humanity. And now we're focusing uh, today on the deity of Christ. Uh, but both those lessons go together, or both those topics go together under one lesson, which is the person of Christ. Okay, so we're going to get into this this morning, some teachings on the deity of Christ. Of course, this is a, um, a major doctrine when it comes, uh, doctrine to be familiar with when it comes to um, cults. Okay, a number of cults, and so I use the word cult to refer to a religious group that substantially deviates from Bible teaching. We're not talking about in minor areas, we're talking about in major doctrines. And this is actually the top doctrine that cults deviate from. Uh, uh, many cults reduce Jesus to just simply a person or some variation of being related to God in a special way, but not fully God. And so the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. Now, at least when I look around the room, I think that those in the room already have this concept in your mind. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, I already know that. Right? But we're not done yet, because if I was going to say the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God, boom, done. Well, no one in the room would learn anything new, and no one in the room would, um, and perhaps online as well, um, would have gotten a lot out of it. What I'm hoping happens in the lesson is that we see uh, a number of, uh, not only verses in the scripture, but a number of teachings that confirm in our minds more solidly that it is true that the Bible does say that he's God and it gives more than just saying he's God. We're going to learn more about Christ and see clearly from the scripture that this is the case. So if I reword that, I would say this, I'm hoping that by the end of the lesson, we feel more confident in, this, in having scriptures in our mind that support this truth. Not so much that we learn this truth that it is true, because I think um, most uh, well Christians understand this already, but we could more solidly say, well, here's why it's true. Um, and if you're like me, uh, which I think you are because you're human, we forget. So um, I'm sure some of these verses will be familiar, but still I think some of them might be new thoughts that had not really connected them specifically to this teaching. So I'm hoping that this is going to be an encouragement uh, to us this morning as we um, become uh, or get our minds going on the deity of Christ. But as I was saying, regarding cults, they, uh, this is a major uh, area that, um, this is, uh, uh, that they challenge the scriptures on. And so, for example, um, you get this in Mormonism, he's the son of God, but he's not God himself. Um, there's a God of this world, God Jehovah in Mormon teaching, but that's not the same person as Jesus. And uh, so um, they also have the thought that Satan himself is also the son of God, but he's like the bad son and Jesus was the good son. And, and so these are teachings, of course, that um, are not in the scripture, but that's because the Mormon faith has other books that they consider to be scripture, which are fairly easy to demonstrate the inaccuracies and fallacies in those books. And yet, unfortunately, many are deceived by them. Uh, but those books that are just of the, um, 
imagination. It looks like we got a message showing up there, Matt, on the screen that um, you know might need to be taken down. Um, MMM table, we got a message up there. Okay, thank you. Um, Matt, wave to me if you can hear me. Oh, okay. Do you see there's a message up here on the screen? Okay. Thank you. I wasn't sure if you already heard me or not. All right. Well, let's uh, get into this. Um, but I won't go into it more today. I don't want to spend time on Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. But those are two major cults that often want to present themselves as very scriptural. And yet, on this uh, particular teaching, they are not. And that's a major problem as we'll see from some of the Bible teaching today, uh, some of the significance of this. So we're going to go into our first slide then, um, which is the, uh, a slide that's going to deal with some of the words in the scripture. So we're going to actually look at several words this morning. Theos is the first one, Kyrios is the second, and then we'll look at other names of the Bible. But basically looking at um, words in the Bible that... Um, teach us that Christ is God through names that he's called. Okay, so um, for those that you know might be new to the series, we're um, using as a primary source a systematic theology book by Wayne Grudem, and I'll quote from him on a num- at a number of uh, places here. But these are um, Grudem's thoughts uh, before we go uh, to our next slide and look at some Bible verses on this. He says, although the word theos, God, That's the Greek word for God, so when you see that. Although the word theos, God, is usually reserved in the New Testament for God the Father, nonetheless, there are several passages where it is also used to refer to Christ. In all of these passages, the word God is used in the strong sense to refer to the one who is the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler over all. Okay, so that was uh, Grudem's thoughts on this. So we're going to look at our um, next uh, slide here and see these. Oops, I realized my, my uh, thumb hit something there. Okay, make sure we're on the right one. Yeah. All right, so uh, John 1 is a major passage on this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's the, all of these are the word theos, again, which is the word meaning God, and it often refers to creator God. And it, um, and in this case, you can see that that's the case. Now, this is one of those verses that Jehovah's Witnesses try to minimize by inserting an article in there, he was a God, as opposed to God. Uh, but regardless of whether, well, let me back up that sentence. Even if that were true, which it's not, uh, sound, there's no sound Bible translators that agree with that. It's not in the Greek, and there's no reason to, to believe that. Okay. I don't want to go off on, uh, what was his name, uh, Charles Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witness, but uh, it's kind of interesting. He was proven in court to be a fraud on his knowledge of Greek because he was actually hauled into court, and there's actually court transcripts on his uh, knowledge of Greek, which he proclaimed, but then they challenged him on it and asked him to read Greek in court, and he couldn't do it. Uh, but anyways, I won't say more on that. Uh, even, if, even if that were true, that's not the only verse in the Bible, so we don't have to rest just solely on that. Uh, but it says clearly, the word now, when you read later on in John chapter 1, you read that clearly that the word is referring to Jesus. Uh, it's a name for Jesus. Um, such as in verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now the whole passage from verse 1 all the way through verse 18 is talking about Jesus Christ. And so he was God. And so... I'm going to do a little... Uh, side thought here. I'd forgotten that I had put this note in here. I'm just going to read what I put and then maybe just use as some little uh, side thoughts off the top of my head. Um, in reference to John 1.18, again, John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Uh, so I think this is Grudem mentioning this. Some of the older manuscripts 
uh, some say best, use theos instead of son. Now, I don't know if uh, everyone already has a familiarity with that. Uh, one of the things that you run into when you're looking at manuscript copies of the Bible is that not all the manuscripts have all the same words at every point. Um, in fact, um, I'm not sure many, if any of them, have completely match up at every point. Now, this could be an uncomfortable truth uh, for Christians. Um, I don't think it should be an uncomfortable truth if we think about it in a certain way. Um, but the, the fact is that when you look at the copies of the scripture, going back to the oldest all the way to the uh, to newer copies, but understand I'm talking about copy, hand copies of scripture. I'm not talking about modern day prints. I'm not talking about translations. I'm talking about hand copies of the scriptures, whether you talk about the Hebrew scriptures, the Greek scriptures, or even portions of Daniel, which are uh, Chaldean. Um, the fact is that they hand copied them. And the fact is that hand copies don't last forever. So we don't have any of the original um, copies of the scripture uh, that were penned by the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, or perhaps some others that were neither apostles nor prophets. That being said, then, um, we have a number of copies. Some of the earliest copies we have date to about 300 A.D., and some of the later copies uh, going to 1100, even, even as late as like 1600 A.D. Of course, along the time of about 1600s, you had the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg, and so after that, you had ways of copying that, um, you know, were a lot more, or a lot less likely to have hand copy errors. Um, although printed copies can still have errors, but and the the potential uncomfortable truth in it is that all those hand copies tend not to at any. Uh, at all points agree with each other. Now there is a concept out there that I don't, um, that as far as I understand, and I've done a decent amount of study on this, I think it's just not true, uh, that there's a line of manuscripts that all agree with each other, um, referred to as the Textus Receptus, but the Textus Receptus is probably better thought of as a translation rather than a copy, um, it, it was actually produced by Decidius Erasmus. Um, Erasmus took five Greek copies that he had uh, available to him in his possession, and those five copies did not agree at every point. And he took from those and tried to merge it into a Greek translation that has become known as the Textus Receptus. So the Textus Receptus line of manuscripts is not itself this unbroken chain that has no disagreements in it, but rather it's a compilation of the five Greek copies that um, Erasmus had in it. And so, now, I allowed myself to get off on that a little bit, but why did I... Why did I uh, think of that in relation to this? Well, um, because that uh, Grudem brought up the one point about some manuscripts in John 1.18, instead of the word son, say the word God in that spot. Um, I think he said, and, and so this might be if you look in, um, uh, in commentaries, sometimes you can get a feel for what the commentator's opinion is on which manuscripts are more reliable when they say, well, the best manuscripts say this. Um, often they're referring to the earliest manuscripts. So we have some manuscripts that go back to about 300 or 400 AD. And um, did, I, I've, no, I've done this in school before. You ever played the game, whether you call it telephone or you call it something else where a kid... You, you, maybe the teacher gives a phrase or something to the first child and then they have to whisper it to the next child and then the next one and it goes all through the room and by the time you get to the end 
it doesn't sound anything like what it was at the beginning. Someone messes it up. Now, you always sometimes have that jokester in the room where a kid messes it up on purpose. I always try to say things to avoid that because I don't think it's as much fun when someone messes it up on purpose. It's fun to see what it sounds like at the end. And so a person just mishears or whatever. And you could say in that that probably the closer you get to the beginning of the line, the more accurate it probably would be. And the further you get away, the, the more chance there is for error. And that's what some uh, Bible teachers, Bible scholars, have that view on manuscripts. If you go back to the oldest ones, 3rd or 4th century or 5th century, probably less chance of error than ones that are like, you know, almost a thousand years later than that. And so that could be true, but I, again, the scriptures don't really say that. So we're outside of, you know, scriptural teaching on that. Uh, but it's logical. Um, however, it, it could be, it could also be like this. Like you get two manuscripts. Let me just hold up two papers. Here's a handwritten copy of the Bible and here's another one. Okay. And so oh, your church doesn't have a copy of the Bible. We have a scribe in our church that copied it. Here's a copy of the book of John, or here's a copy of the book of Peter. And these two copies, you know, let, let's say, I mean, at some point, if, they, if these differ, at some point someone made a mistake in the copy. By the way, uh, I'll come back to this moment. God promises to preserve his word. Okay, I'll come back to that thought in a moment, but... These get passed on to a church and then they're copied and copied. Okay. If a mistake is made early on, this mistake could be passed on to this church, which is copied here, copied here. And if this one doesn't have any of that same mistake, it could be that we don't have this one where the mistake was made, but it could be that we have an early copy of it, even in the thir- third, fourth, or fifth century. The mistake might have already been made. The fact that the copy is one of the oldest we can find doesn't prove that the mistake didn't happen before that copy. Um, but, you know, again, because it's a, um, a thousand years earlier, then maybe it's less likely, but still doesn't prove anything. So, anyways, the fact is that we, we don't really know. Um, but here's, here's where our minds, I think, can be settled on that issue. God said he'll preserve his word. That's, that's a starting point. Okay? said he would. Okay? When you see the differences amongst the copies, they don't really touch on any doctrinal issue such that, I shouldn't say, uh, listen to my whole Sundays before you conclude what I mean by it. They don't touch on any doctrinal issue in a way that causes us not to understand the doctrinal issue. Uh, this would be one. And so that's why I'm using it as an example. In John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Some other copies um, have the word God there. Now that doesn't mean, um, and I've seen this kind of thinking out there, like one, one uh, translation will be criticized because it seems to um, diminish a certain doctrine. So while well, I'm reading out of the King James here, and I would not criticize the King James or saying, well, it changed the word God to Son and thus diminished the deity of Christ. Um, here's the point. Whether the word Son or God is in this passage, we have many, many passages in Scripture that allow us to know that Jesus is God. And the fact that in the King James, which is based on certain um, Greek manuscripts, the word Son is there, does not mean that Jesus isn't God. And it's not an attempt on the part of translators or copyists to diminish the deity of Christ. Um, So I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, and I don't think most that have these differences aren't attempting to undermine the scripture. And so I don't think the King James translators were attempting to undermine the deity of Christ by using the word son here. Uh, The fact is, though, that um, the King James translators at the time they translated this didn't have um, some of the older copies. They weren't really available yet Um, would they have gone with the word God in this verse I don't know Um, 
But it doesn't matter in this sense. We know from scripture that Jesus is God. And you have it there in verse 1 of John 1, not just in verse 18. Um, So, all right, now I'm going to move on now that I allowed myself to get off on that. Do you have a question or a statement? So, yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah. In context, they're one and the same. Yeah. Yep. Good point. Well, let's look at our other verses that we have on the slide. John uh, 20 verse 28, uh, the declaration from Thomas when he was doubting like that Jesus really was alive. Unless I see him, like basically he said, unless I see him with my own eyes, he didn't say it that way, but that's how we'd say it. I'm not going to believe. And I said, I want to touch. I want to touch for myself. I want to see the nail print. I want to touch the nail prints. I want to touch his side. Let me, let me find out if he really is risen. And when he saw Christ himself, he declared my Lord and my God. Now, the Bible is God's inspired word. And so, God, omniscient God, does not make poor word choices. He does not make statements in the scripture that's like, whoops, I didn't realize that that's what it would sound like. He doesn't have those moments. So these things are significant. The actual wording of scripture is significant and it matters. And so my Lord and my God, uh, Thomas declares and is recorded in scripture. And then we have a Romans 9 verse 5. Uh, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God-blessed forever. Okay, describing Christ. Okay, so, all right, what do I have here? Oh, I remember. It's like, why do I, I had part of this repeating. Um, I have a, okay, Knock, knock. Wakey, wakey. Okay, it's not wanting to advance to the next slide. Let's try it now. Nope. Okay, well, while we try to get that to work, to advance to the next slide, I'll read. So here's another verse on the next slide. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, we're looking for that blessed hope. We're looking for Jesus Christ as the context here. We're looking for the appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is not two things. Oops, there we go. Um, It's not saying we're looking for the great God and we're also looking for our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're looking, this is one and the same. We're looking for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, Hebrews 1.8. But unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Directly addressed at the Son, Hebrews 1.8. A scepter of righteousness is, a, is the scepter of thy kingdom. And of course, that's quoting Psalm 45, verse 6, that says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. But we see clearly in Hebrews that it is applying that thought to Jesus Christ himself, addressing him as God. And so, even in the Greek or the Hebrew Old Testament, um, the word there in Psalm 45, 6 is Elohim, which refers to a God, okay, a supreme God especially. And then our next verse, uh, 2 Peter 1, 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? So similar to uh, the, the verse that we just read in Titus, he is our God and Savior. Well, here's an Old Testament example, Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. Uh, Jesus is referred to in this verse, For unto us a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, well, these are a number of instances where in the scripture Jesus is referred to as God, but let's go on to a second Greek word. Okay, this is the word Kyrios. Okay, this word is often translated in the Bible as Lord. And so um, I'll read from Grudem here regarding Kyrios. Sometimes the word Lord, Kyrios, is used simply as a polite address to a superior. Be like saying master, you know, Lord in that sense. Roughly equivalent to our word sir. Sometimes it can simply mean master of a servant or slave. Yet the same word is also used in the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, It's probably the translation that was, I shouldn't say probably, it was the translation used uh, by Jesus on a number of occasions. And that's because when he quotes the scripture, you can tell he quoted the Septuagint. Well, how can you tell that? Because we're reading it in English. Well, that's because the word choice is like if I quote from one translation, if I quote from the ESV, the English Standard Version, versus the KJV, the King James Version, versus the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, each one being slightly worded. If I quoted you a verse and you said, oh, what translation is that? Well, if you went and looked up that verse in You could, oh, he's quoting from this one. Look, it matches word for word for what he said. Well, you can go to to quotes from Jesus and find that they match the Septuagint. And sometimes that explains, by the way, why a verse quoted in the New Testament doesn't perfectly match the quoted verse in the Old Testament. It's like, what what happened? How come they... How come the verse got changed when it got recorded? Well, because our New Testament in Greek, sometimes what's being quoted is the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. And therefore, there can be slight word differences between two ver- the, the, the Greek New Testament quote. And the, it's not that the Greek New Testament got it wrong. It says being quoted out of the Septuagint. But anyways, he says here... Um, yet the same word, kurios, is also used in the Septuagint uh, as a translation for the Hebrew Yahweh. Um, so we, we then understand that this word is sometimes when the, when, the Hebrew, when the Jews or the Hebrews translated Yahweh from Hebrew into Greek, they used the word kurios to translate that. Okay? So it is used of God in Greek at times. All right, he goes on to say, or Jehovah. The word Kyrios is used to translate the name of the Lord 6,814 times in the Greek Old Testament or the Septuagint. Therefore, any Greek-speaking reader at the time of the New Testament who had any knowledge at all of the Greek Old Testament or the Septuagint would have recognized that in context where it was appropriate, the word Lord was the name of the one who was the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the omnipotent God. In other words, they would have recognized that this is used for Yahweh and Jehovah at times. Okay. So there are many instances in the New Testament. Now, we're talking about spots in the New Testament that are not a, not a quote of the Old Testament. It's not a translation of the Old Testament. But the word gets used in the New Testament. It says there are many instances in the New Testament where Lord is used of Christ in what can only be understood as this strong Old Testament sense, the Lord who is Yahweh or Jehovah God himself. Okay, so what are some of these verses that we have here? Uh, Luke 2 verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Kyrios, Christ the Lord. Uh, Grudem, in reference to this verse, says, though these words are familiar to us from frequent reading of the scripture story, how many feel very familiar with that? Right, we hear that a lot in in, Christmas time. We quote that in church, and maybe we have a Christmas pageant with kids, you know, in it, and we have this as one of the verses. 
But he goes on to say we should realize how surprising it would be to any first century Jew to hear that someone born as a baby was the Christ, which means Messiah. The, the, the Christ is the Greek word equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, literally, it means the anointed one. And so he's again reading from Grudem. Um, that they would have been surprised to hear that someone born as a baby was the Christ or Messiah. And moreover, that this one who was the Messiah was also the Lord. That is the Lord God himself. The amazing force of the angel's statement, which the shepherds could hardly believe, was to say essentially, today in Bethlehem a baby has been born who is your Savior and your Messiah and who is also God himself. Now, if that's the only, again, if that's the only verse that we had and we're trying to draw this, I'm sure people could try to maybe find a way to wiggle around that saying, well, the word Lord here could also just mean a master. But again, it's going to be the totality of scriptures on this. We look first at Theos and Kyrios and a number of statements, but we're going to see much more than that here in a little bit. And so... Let me uh, finish uh, reading him. It is not surprising that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So then we have the Luke 1 verse 41 passage. It came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, of course this is Mary the mother of Jesus, Um, her cousin Elizabeth was also pregnant with John the Baptist. Her pregnancy is about six months ahead of Jesus. And so John is going to be about six months older than Christ. Uh, Christ Jesus. And so Elizabeth is pregnant. And so she, when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, Luke one forty one, the babe leaped in her womb. Let's talk about John the Baptist uh, inside of her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, And blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Now she's speaking about Mary and Jesus, the Christ child that's in her. And and then she says this, And whence is this to me, or how is this possible has happened to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Using the word kyrios to make that statement. Now another commentator, not Grudem, um, says this, What beautiful superiority to envy have we here high as was the distinction conferred upon herself elizabeth loses sight of it altogether in the presence of one more honored still that she had honor in being the mother of john the baptist but even so she's more you know loses sight of that honor at being in the presence of mary and the christ child so they go on to say, upon whom with her unborn babe in an ecstasy of inspiration, she, Elizabeth, pronounces a benediction, feeling it to be a wonder unaccountable that the mother of her Lord should come to her. Turn this as we will, we shall never be able to see the propriety of calling an unborn child Lord. But by supposing Elizabeth, like the prophets of old, enlightened to perceive the Messiah's divine nature. And then, of course, we have that recorded in Scripture. So then our next verse uh, regarding Kyrios is Matthew 3, 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, saying, the voice of one, by the way, some of the spelling name changes because of the, the language, you know, Greek versus Hebrew. And so that's why it's not a misspelling of Isaiah. Isaiah with an E, Isaiah with an I. Um, that's just difference of language. But what did Isaiah say, being quoted here in Matthew 3, 3? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Of course, that's referencing John the Baptist. But what is John the Baptist going to be crying out? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Quoting Isaiah 43 there. And so again, curious. Matthew 22, um, verses, verse 44 specifically Uh, But this is an instance in verse 41 when the Pharisees are come. In verse 42, uh, they ask a question. What do you think of the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Um, Actually, I'm sorry, I I said that wrong. Jesus poses the question to them. Who do you think his son, whose son is he? And they say, well, he's the son of David. 
Uh, of course, the scriptures teach he's the son of David. But then Jesus poses a question that they can't answer. Uh, it says in verse 43, well, how is that possible then that David in the spirit, under inspiration of, of God, calls him Lord? Okay, verse 44, and then he quotes, the Lord, which is Kyrios, said unto my Lord, which is Kyrios, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now this would be unusual. Um, if Jesus is the offspring of David, he's in a subservient position. You, know, you show respect to your elders. You show respect to your father. You know, we don't have all the, that respect always in our culture where people are disrespectful to people that are older than them and have a you know, position in life a little bit. They, they deserve some respect. But why would David call his offspring his Lord? And they couldn't answer that. They didn't, I mean, how is it he, he did that? Why would David call one of his offspring, if he's just a man, his Lord? And so he poses a question that they're not able to answer, but it's, it's a, a further evidence of Kyrios being used for a sovereign Lord. Um, as Grudem says, Jesus also identifies himself as the sovereign Lord of the Old Testament when he asked the Pharisees about this. Okay, and then we have Hebrews uh, 1, verse 10. Okay, trying to figure out which verse. It's the last one on our slide here. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens and the works of thine hands. They shall perish, the creation, but you remain and they all shall wax old or grow old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them and they shall be changed. But thou art the same and thy years shall not fail. Okay. So let me uh, read some thoughts here. Uh, Such usage, Grudem says, is seen frequently in the epistles where the Lord is a common name to refer to Christ. Paul says there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things and we in him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we in him, the Christ the creator. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. He goes on uh, to say, Grudem that is, a particularly clear passage is found in Hebrews 1, where the author quotes Psalm 102, which speaks about the work of the Lord in creation and applies it to Christ. Here Christ is explicitly spoken of as the eternal Lord of heaven and earth who created all things and will remain the same forever. Such strong usage of the term Lord to refer to Christ culminates in Revelation 19 verse 16 where we see Christ returning as conquering king and Grudem quoting uh, from uh, Revelation 19:16 says, on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay, and so, let me go. Okay. I, was, I couldn't remember if I had a next slide with some more verses on it. And I don't, but for some reason I have a repeat of my notes, which is... Or do I? I've done this before. I'm trying to fool myself. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'll figure it out as I go. But I have some notes talking more about Curios and talking about Luke 2.11 again, as if I'm starting back up at the top. Um, so, Luke. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to move on because I don't have a lot of time anyway. So I'm going to go to my next slide and see if I can. Let me see here. Hold on. Un momento. Okay, I think I'm going to recover by just coming to this point. I'm not sure what's going on there with the repeat of those. Might be a copy and paste error. Um, these other uh, names that are here, um, we're not going to spend as much time on these. 
But again, they're demonstrations of names applied to Christ uh, that uh, support his deity. Of course, he had that one um, passage uh, recorded for us where Christ says, I am, and uses that as a reference to himself. And they took up stones to stone him on that. He's also referred to as the Alpha and Omega, one that has no beginning and no end. We already looked at a verse on the word and saw what God has to say about that. And then uh, verses on the Son of Man and the Son of God, um, also names that are given to Christ. But I want to keep moving along to our next one because what we have in our next slides are attributes of Christ that are attributes of deity. So it's not just names in the Bible where he's called God. He has attributes of God. So we're going to look at these one at a time, uh, starting with our first one, that Jesus had this attribute, omnipotence, which means all power. Uh, You and I are not all powerful, but Jesus was. How is this demonstrated in the scriptures? Matthew 8, verses 26 through 27 is the account of the loaves and the fishes. Uh, we also have a, um, another account in John 2, verses 1 through 11, which is changing water into wine. And so both of these uh, demonstrate that Jesus himself in these is able to do miracles. Um, you might say, well, maybe perhaps he did a miracle like Paul did a miracle. Um, the question is, was he doing a miracle under the power of God, which he's not the, the God? Or was he doing a miracle under his own power? as God. Well, here's one verse of the Bible that gives us some uh, insight into this. It's John 2, verse 11. And it's specifically referencing the water being changed to wine, which John 2, 11 identifies as the beginning of miracles. Uh, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And then it's the next phrase, and manifested forth his glory. It's not manifesting forth the glory of God, which is not Jesus. It's manifesting forth his own glory. Well, this is not the type of language that you would expect from just simply a man. The Bible is very careful about not worshiping man. And you'll find times when people tried to worship man, and if it was a godly person, they refused. No, no, I'm not a god. Don't, Don't try to worship me. We'll see more instances of Christ being worshipped uh, in just a little bit. Okay, but John 2 11, he did a miracle that showed, the word manifest means to show, it showed forth his glory. And so it wasn't just the glory of the Holy Spirit or the glory of God the Father. Uh, Grudem says, similarly, after Jesus stilled the storm of the Sea of Galilee, the disciples did not say how great is the power of the Holy Spirit working through this prophet. They didn't say that. What did they say? What sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? They recognized and recorded in scripture there was something about Christ. This wasn't just a prophet doing a miracle in the power of God. What kind of, what kind of man is this that the wind and sea obey him? Okay, um, a next one. We uh, touched on this just briefly a little bit ago. Um, he is the I am. Well, this, the aspect of eternal life or eternity. Um, he said in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am. Or in Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega. God's the only one that doesn't have a beginning and end. God wasn't born. You can't say who's the father of God. He has no father. He's self existent. And Jesus uh, these these names of self existency are applied to Christ. He is eternal. Okay, so a next attribute in the scriptures, omniscience. Okay, so one verse that demonstrates this is Matthew 2, verse 8. And in this verse, it demonstrates that he knew the thoughts of people. It says there, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? He He knew their thoughts. He could be a mind reader and not just a charlatan mind reader who faked the ability um, like many of your, you know, fortune tellers, you know, seance kind of 
crystal ball tarot card people who just you know, take some educated guesses and are wrong 99% of the time and get lucky occasionally. Uh, Jesus knew their thoughts. Or how about the case with Nathaniel? Um, and um, we see when he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, John 1 48 says, Nathaniel says to him, uh, Whence knowest thou me? How do you know me? Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I knew you. Now, I didn't uh, copy here in this, but Nathaniel makes a statement, just astonishing. He, he, this convinced him of Christ's Messiahship. Um, that was amazing, because there was no way he could have known that. He didn't say, oh, were you hiding over there and peeking at me around the building? No, he saw something that was not possible for him to see. It demonstrated his omniscience. And then, well, let me read this. I was trying to think if I had time to. I'm going to read uh, this from Grudem. Of course, the revelation of individual specific events or facts is something that God could give to anyone who had a gift of prophecy in the Old or New Testament. But Jesus' knowledge was much more extensive than that. This isn't just simply a prophet like Daniel being told what the dream meant that Nebuchadnezzar had. It's not, it's not just simply something like that. He knew the, who those were that did not believe, thus implying that he knew the belief or unbelief that was in the heart of all men. In fact, John says explicitly that Jesus knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man. That's John 2.25. The disciples would letter, later say to him, Now we know that you know all things. That's John 16.30. These statements say much more than what could be said of any great prophet or apostle of the Old Testament or New Testament, for they imply omniscience on the part of Jesus. Finally, after his resurrection, when Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, Peter answered, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest all things. Um, thou know that I love thee. John twenty-one seventeen. Again, it's scripture by the inspiration of God inspiring it to be written this way. Jesus, you know all things. Um, he goes on to say, Here Peter is saying much more than that Jesus knows his heart and knows that he loves him. He is rather making a general statement. You know everything. And from it he is drawing a specific conclusion. You know that I love you. Peter is confident that Jesus knows what is in his heart in the heart of every person, and therefore is sure that Jesus knows his own heart. And so that's Grudem uh, commenting on that verse. Okay, our next word is the word omnipresence. And at, again, we're on attributes of Christ that demonstrate his deity. Okay, now, omnipresence of Christ is not directly affirmed to be true of Jesus during his earthly ministry, Grudem mentions. However, while looking forward to the time when the church would be established, Jesus could say, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's Matthew 18, 20. Moreover, before he left the earth, he told his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth or the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. And so Jesus talks about his omnipresence, even if in his earthly ministry he's not there's not demonstrated everywhere present. He says, it's going to be that way. Two or three gather together, in my name to pray, I'm right there with you, which would be impossible without omnipresence. And then we have the sovereignty of God demonstrated. Uh, Jesus possessed divine sovereignty, okay? a kind of authority possessed by God alone. Only God is sovereign over all. And it's seen in the fact that he could forgive sins. That's Mark 2, verse 5 through 7. Also in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, especially ref, uh, in reference to this, um, unlike the Old Testament prophets who declared, thus says the Lord, he could preface his statements with the phrase, but I say to you, which is that amazing reference. Only Christ could do that in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it's been said this by the prophets, I say to you this. Wait a minute, what are you changing the scriptures? Yeah, the God of the scriptures can clarify and comment on the scripture to say you've heard this and of course many of his comments were even to the uh the tradition of the pharisees but he spoke with authority i say to you 
they, they sometimes comment on that, like, wow, he speaks as one that has authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees the Bible teaches us. And so he spoke with the kind of authority of, of a sovereign ruler, God. And then we have immortality. He said, destroy this temple, speaking of his own body, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now Jesus actually did die, but the Bible speaks that he had a part in his own resurrection. Now, the Bible also speaks that God, the Father, raised him up. But the Bible um, speaks to Jesus having a part in his own resurrection when he said, in the verse I just quoted to you, destroy this temple and in three days, not in three days God will raise it up, in three days I will raise it up. Thus he had, I mean, he never ceased to exist. His body died, but he has an immortality and he raised his own body as well. Of course, if he was completely dead and gone, how could you do that if you're powerless? But he was not. Uh, Hebrews 7.16 says, Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, speaking of Christ. Okay, and lastly, worthy to be worshipped. Okay, so only God deserves worship. And yet we find, uh, as an example of this, in Philippians chapter 2, I'll read verses 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so people are going to bow down and they're going to confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You don't bow down to a person. Uh, Men of God refuse that kind of worship. And yet Jesus does not refuse that kind of worship because God alone deserves worship and he accepts it. And so... All right, well, I hope that strengthened us and and encouraged us in the Bible, having strong, strong uh, teachings on the deity of Christ. It's not just an obscure verse or two to lead us to that conclusion. Uh, This was God himself in the flesh, who was the only one, the only one to be the, the Lamb of God that could be the Savior of mankind. So praise God for that, but I need to end our time. And so let's go ahead.